Well, good morning. It is a pleasure to be here with you this morning, worshiping God as a body of his people, serving him, serving one another, edifying one another in song. And we pray this morning as we dive into his word that that edification would continue. We, of course, want to welcome anyone who is joining us for the first time this morning and want to welcome you to La Prada Drive Church of Christ and want you to know that you're welcome here anytime. And we want you to know that we want you here anytime you can make it with us. The more you come, the more you get involved, the more blessings you'll find out what being a member of God's kingdom truly is. If you would, grab a Bible there in front of you and turn with me to Hebrews, the 10th chapter. Hebrews, the 10th chapter, and we'll start in verse 19 this morning. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 19. This is going to serve for our theme text of the morning. Hebrews 10 and 19. Hebrews 10, 19 says, Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he hath consecrated for us through the veil that is to say is flesh. And having an high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful without promise, or that promise. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. The Hebrew writer, while, while stressing the importance of the superiority of Jesus, is also urging the Hebrew, Israelite, Jewish community to grow up, if you will. This is five years before, give or take, when the Roman Empire would destroy the Jerusalem temple in 70 AD. And the new Christian community is going to undergo persecution like they have never seen before. And so the message to these Hebrew Christians is, grow up. And to understand the totality of this message that's being presented in these short six verses, we want to journey back to the time of the Levitical priesthood and the Mosaical law to understand what's being said here. On the screen in front of you is a diagram of what is called the tabernacle complex or the tent of meeting. This was a place in which the Hebrew people, the Israelites, would come to bring sacrifices to God. And I understand that when we read this stuff, it can be a little dry. A lot of it is. Other than for the purpose of teaching us the transition to Christ, serving as a schoolmaster really isn't that applicable for me today. I don't have to go build a tabernacle. So we're going to walk through this a little differently. If you recall the books of, books of Exodus in which God is commanding Moses to set up the tabernacle or the tent of meeting, there are three general areas that Israelites had to pay attention to. They are the outer courtyard in which all Jews were allowed to be at, in fact had to be at, in order to come make sacrifices. They then had the tent of meeting consisting of two separate areas. The first area was known as the holy place, and the second one was known as the holiest of holies. That's the general breakdown of how this tent of meeting or tabernacle was set up. Now I want you to imagine for a moment that you are an Israelite, for whom the time has come to offer a sacrifice. So you gather yourself, you get your wife, you get your kids, and you get a lamb, and you head down to the tabernacle. 
And when you get there, you walk inside this gate and you're inside the courtyard of the tabernacle. You walk closer towards the middle and you see the blood, smell the burning flesh everywhere, and you make it almost to the bronze altar and you're greeted by a priest. The priest then takes that lamb and he slays that lamb in front of you and your family and then lays that body down on the bronze altar. The fire consumes that offering and this priest leads you in worship of God while that body is being consumed. But as a common Israelite, you can't go any further than the outer courtyard. You've never seen what the inner tent looks like. You may have heard stories from when you were a young child of God's instruction to Moses on how to build it, but you aren't of the tribe of Levi, so you'll never see the inside of that tent. So you ask the priest what the inside looks like. And this priest says, well, the most holy place, the holy place, is a room filled with three pieces of furniture. The seven golden candlesticks, the altar of incense, and the table of showbread, each designed and made for God. And then there is a veil. And this veil hangs and separates the two parts of the tent of meeting or of the tabernacle. And behind this veil sits the Ark of Covenant, which contains the mercy seat of God. And so you ask this priest, well, can I take my family in and see the holy place? I want to see what the altar of incense looks like. And he says, no, 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 only the tribes of Levi, only the priests that are of the tribe of Levi are inside the holy place. So you say, well, well, hold on, what about the mercy seat of God? I want to see where God dwells. And he says, well, hold on now, not even I can go in there. In fact, the veil is so thick, it's said that horses pulling from both sides can't rip that veil apart. Only the high priest can go in there. And he can only go in there once a year on the Day of Atonement, wearing the blood of the slain animal and sprinkles that blood on the mercy seat of God. You see, if I can't even go in there, you who are not a priest, you who are a common Israelite cannot go in. There's no admission. The veil separates man from God, separates the common people from God. The common Israelite doesn't have access to God directly. Not even the priests who are making daily sacrifices with blood all over them can access God. The veil separates man due to his sin. Now fast forward to John 1 and 29, around 30 AD. John the Baptist sees Jesus and he says, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. And of course, that Lamb of God, that perfect sacrifice, that sacrifice that wasn't possible by the blood of bull and goats, that couldn't be offered on the bronze altar, that couldn't be sprinkled on the mercy seat, that full forgiveness of sins was here And he was here to die on a cross. That Lamb of God which takes away the sin of the world. And I want to show you why this is so important to the common Israelites and why this is important to our message this morning. Luke records in his 23rd chapter of his gospel in the 44th verse. He says, And it was about the sixth hour, and there was a darkness over the earth until the ninth hour. And the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was rent in the midst. That room that the common Israelite couldn't enter, that room that had been separating God's people from him, that room that said no admittance, was now accessible. That veil was torn in two. Now, who tore the veil? Jesus Christ, by his death on the cross, both physically, symbolically, and metaphorically, tears that veil in two. The holiest of holies is now accessible. And because of that death, because the veil is torn, the Hebrew writer says what? having, brethren, therefore, boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus. Boldness to approach God, not because of something I did, 
not because I'm worthy. In fact, what I deserve is that veil to still be hanging. What I deserve is to not be able to come to God because I'm dirty, because I'm worthless. Who am I to come to God? Who am I to ask things of God? Who am I to receive salvation from God? Yet the writer in Hebrews says, because of Jesus, because of what he did for you, because of what he accomplished on the cross, come boldly to the throne of God. So the question for you this morning, how do you approach God? Do you approach God in prayer and in worship and in praise with boldness through Christ, or are you afraid? Now understand, I'm not saying we shouldn't fear God in the sense of true reverence and fear for our soul, but are we coming to God boldly with confidence, knowing that he hears us, knowing that because Jesus died that he wants a relationship with us? Do we come boldly because the veil is torn? And after this introduction, the Hebrew writer gives us three divine imperatives, three participles in the Greek for us not only to consider, but commands for us to follow. The writer says, because we can boldly approach Jesus, because he has torn the veil, because he has consecrated a new and living way through his flesh, because he is now our high priest. Remember the theme from the book of Hebrews we studied the last couple months, because Jesus is superior, we should do three things. The writer says, let us draw near, let us hold fast, and let us consider one another to provoke. ESV says, let us stir up. And I want to take you back to the sixth chapter of Hebrews for a moment and read a passage out of it. Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 1 says, Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on unto perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms and of the laying on of hands and of the resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment. You notice any similarities in the linguistic style? The same phrase, the same Greek participle is used here in chapter 6. Let us go on into perfection. ESV says, let us go on to maturity. Because Jesus has torn the veil because of everything that has happened, because you are a child of God saved by the blood of Jesus, let's leave the elementary things and press on to maturity. Now compare that phrase to the three divine imperatives in chapter 10. Let us draw near... Let us hold fast. Let us stir up. Same phrase, the same thing the writer tells you in chapter 6, let us press on, and in chapter 10 explains how to do that. Let us draw near, let us hold fast, let us stir up. And I want you to notice this morning what these three pieces represent when it comes to maturity in the Christian faith. Look at the screen for a minute. That chart represents these three pieces. You see, we have a vertical piece, we have a horizontal piece, and we have a point in the middle. That vertical piece is your relationship with God. That vertical piece represents the first of these three aspects. Let us draw near. The horizontal aspect deals not with you and your relative closeness to God, but rather your relative closeness to God's people and what you're doing to promote the kingdom. Let us stir one another to love and good works. But we have this point in the middle, if you will. A point that deals with you and your own heart. A point that deals with you and your own faith. Let us hold fast. So for the rest of our time this morning, we're going to discuss this three-point path to spiritual maturity that the Hebrew writer gives us. Let us draw near. Let us hold fast. Let us stir up. I want to begin by asking you a question this morning. How close are you to God right now? How close are you to God right now? 
I'll be honest with you, there's been worship services over the last year or so where I was fired up. Services where I was glued to the teacher I was involved, being moved by the praise. Moments where I felt like I was on fire. And then there's been services where I spent the whole time on my phone. Times where I was more involved in what was going on in the world. Times where I was waiting for updates on the football game, responding to work emails even. Where are you this morning? Are you involved? Did you mentally prepare for the worship assembly? How close are you to God right now? The writer says, when discussing maturity, let us draw near to God. Now, I want you to take note of the structure of this sentence. This looks to be in present tense, let us. That's what present tense looks like in English. Let us right now do this. For example, let us go to the store. Let us go to the game. That would imply not next year, but right now. Let us do something. But the present tense in English, in a sense, dilutes the writer's original intent. And the Greek, this clause, let us draw near, let us hold fast, let us consider one another, are actually in what is called present and future perfect. And so what this is saying is not only draw near today, but let us draw near tomorrow, next week, seven days a week, 24-7, continually drawing near to God. So as much as I can apply this passage as a whole to the importance of being at the assembly, that isn't the totality of what's being presented here. That isn't the totality of what he's trying to convey. He's saying that we need to be a people that continually seek God. A people that continually draw near to God. Now, how do we do that? Well, there are four conditions, if you will, that the Hebrew writer states when discussing this idea. He first lists two conditions in which we must meet. He says, let us draw near, number one, with a true heart, and number two, in full assurance of faith. Now, what does it mean to draw near with a true heart? Turn with me to the book of Matthew in chapter 15. These verses will be on the board if you'd rather look up there. Matthew chapter 15 and verse 1 says, Then came Jesus, scribes and Pharisees, which were of Jerusalem, saying, Why do thy disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they wash not their hands when they eat bread. During this time, there was a man-made tradition of washing your hands before you eat bread. And so the scribes and Pharisees are accusing Jesus and his followers of breaking this man-made tradition. And so Christ replies, and he says, But he answered and said unto them, Why do you also transgress the commandment of God by your tradition? For God commanded, saying, Honor thy father and mother, and he that curseth father and mother, let him die the death. But ye say, Whosoever shall say to his father and mother, It is a gift, by whatsoever thou mightest be profited by me. And honor not his father and mother, he shall be free. Thus have ye made the commandment of God of none effect by your tradition. Ye hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you, saying, This people draweth nigh unto me with their mouth, honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. You see, the Pharisees had taken this tradition and they had made it more important than God's command. They had convinced themselves that by following those earthly traditions that were made by man, they were following and pleasing God, that they were drawing near to God. But that isn't the truth, was it? James 4 and 8 says, Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. I want you to notice the connection here. Most of the references that talk about drawing near to God also include the idea of the heart and the status of the heart. And Matthew, they think they're drawing near, but it's just lip service. 
James says, draw near to God and purify your heart. And in Hebrews, he says, draw near with a true heart. When we draw near to God, we need to do it with a true heart. A heart that comes in gratitude and thanksgiving and reverence and in love. Not focused on the world. Not focused on what our next meal is going to be. Not focused on the game, but truly drawn to God. The the writer lists another condition in which we draw near in full assurance of faith. Knowing that the unseen that you're drawing to, the unbelievable God by worldly standards that you come to in prayer actually hears you. Faith, the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, draw near knowing that God hears you. Knowing that he hears and understands your pains, knowing that he's blessing you beyond measure. And then we have what I wouldn't really consider conditions, but rather preconditions to drawing to God. He says, having, so notice this is already done and continually being done, not something we're doing now, but having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Brethren, when we draw near to God through Jesus Christ because he has washed us and made us clean, Because he has sent Christ to the cross in order to adopt us as children. We are washed inside and out. Think back to the time of the Levitical priesthood. There was a cleansing and sanctification process that the priests and high priests underwent before they went into the tabernacle. And today we have the same thing. We've been washed in Christ's blood and clothed in his righteousness before we draw near to God. So God, through Christ, has invited you into this worship, into this fellowship with him, and tells you to have boldness in doing so. There's a few ways in which we can do this. First of all, we can draw near to God with praise. We can draw near to God with praise. And this, of course, is done and commanded to be done in a corporate worship assembly, but our praise and thanksgiving shouldn't just start at 10.30 a.m. on a Sunday. We need to be Christians who draw near with praise all the time, making melody in our hearts, thanking and praising him for the awesome God that he is. Oftentimes we get caught up in the do-re-mis. We get lost in how fast the song is. We get lost in how slow the song is. We get lost in what song they chose or what song they didn't choose. That's not drawing near to God. It's drawing near to sheet music. That's not praise. If we are so hyper-focused on the effectiveness of the music that we forget to praise God, we're not getting the point. It tells us to make melody in our hearts, but we forget the last part. Make melody in our hearts to the Lord. That's who it's for. And yes, we can edify and lift each other up while praising God. We can build up our brothers and sisters in song, and we should be. But when drawing near to God in praise, let's focus on God. Let's make it about God. Focus on the words. Focus on what the words mean. I'll be honest with you, like we just talked about, there are songs in that songbook right now that I would never lead because I think they're too slow or I don't like the melody or whatever the case is. But if you look at the words and you're drawing near to God with a true heart, they should and could move you to tears. When you sing a song of praise and you hit that one verse that you can't even get the words out because your lips quivering so much, you get it. You're drawing near to God with a true heart. So let's draw near to God with praise. The second way in which we can draw near to God is through prayer. 1 Thessalonians 5 and 16 says, Rejoice evermore, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. 
Pray without ceasing. Now, does Paul mean we have to pray 100% of the time? No. Does Paul mean when you're eating dinner or watching the football game, you shouldn't be focused on that because you should be praying the whole time? No. But what he is saying is we should have a mindset of prayer, a mindset where we go into prayer continually. Pray without ceasing. That clause is the same tense as let us draw near. Pray without ceasing. Same tense. Continually pray. But here's the catch. Sometimes my personal prayer life consists of what I like to call quick prayers. Little bullet prayers, right? I'm driving to work and I go to God in prayer in about 10 seconds and say, give me the strength to get there tonight, amen, right? Or I have Chick-fil-A sitting in front of me. That Chick-fil-A sauce is open. I'm ready to go. Ask him to bless the food. I'm done. I'm eating now. Before I even say amen, chicken nuggets in my mouth. But the question is, much like the idea of drawing near, where is my heart when I do that? Sometimes we need to just have focused prayer time. We need to dedicate time to hit our knees and truly go to God in prayer. Set aside a few minutes every day to go to our Heavenly Father. Pray for the church, pray for your children, but also don't forget to pray for yourself. I think oftentimes we get caught up so much in praying for others that it's almost like we feel guilty to pray for ourselves. You ever felt like that? Something we're dealing with? Just a quick thought. Who is Jesus praying for in the Garden of Gethsemane? He's praying for the strength to carry on, the strength to fight that race ahead of him, is he not? Brethren, don't be afraid to pray for yourself. Because if we want to draw near to God, if we want to spiritually mature, we have to become vulnerable. We've got to come to God with our heartaches. We have to come with him with our fears, our anxieties. We need to come to him with our needs. Not to point out the obvious, but it's not like we're going to reveal something to God he doesn't already know, right? So come to him. Because when we're vulnerable and come to him in prayer, that's when we're close to God and we're drawn to him. The third way in which we can draw near to God is through his word. We need to be people who dive into his word, and we've got to do it with the right mindset. Just like the bullet prayers, I can put on the audio Bible in the background while I'm vacuuming. Just as I can say those quick little prayers and I can check it off my Christian checklist for the day anytime I want. But once again, where's my heart when I'm doing that? Like the passage of the Pharisees, you're doing all the right things, but with the wrong heart. Now, I'm not saying it's bad to have Bible going in the background. Don't take that away this morning. But what I am saying is, like prayer, we need to have dedicated time to dive into God's Word. Dedicated time to commune with Him in that Word, to let the Word dwell in us richly, to apply it to our lives and do what God wants for us. It's pretty simple, right? If we want to draw near to God, a good way to do that would be to read the words that He's preserved through centuries for us to have. The writer in Hebrews addresses this concept in the fifth chapter of Hebrews. He says, For when the time ye ought to be teachers, ye have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God, and are becoming such as having need of milk and not of strong meat. For everyone that useth milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But strong meat belongeth to them that are of full age, even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. We need to be striving to become more mature. We need to be moving from milk to meat, chewing on the Word of God daily. You see, God doesn't ask you to know every single thing out there there is to know. He doesn't ask you to be able to answer every single theological question out there. 
But what he is looking for is progress. Progress. Notice the emphasis is not on where we're at right now. It's not on whether you're on milk or baby food, green beans, meat, whatever it is. The emphasis is on moving from milk to meat. If your spiritual maturity metaphorically is a 3 out of 10 this year, let's make it a 4 next year. It's all about drawing closer to God through our journey and our spiritual walk with Christ. So that's the vertical of spiritual maturity. Draw near to God. And let's do it continually with a true heart and full assurance of faith. And let's do it through praise. Let's do it through worship. Let's do it through prayer. Let's do it through reading his word. Let us draw near. The next piece of this process of spiritual maturity is found in the next part of the passage. The writer says, let us hold fast. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering. Now that's a pretty strong call, isn't it? We talked about drawing continually to God, and in a moment we're going to talk about drawing near to our brothers and sisters or getting closer with our brothers and sisters. But this point in the middle, it's all about you and it's all about our faith. The thing that holds your faith, the thing that holds your maturity together, let us hold fast. That word there, hold fast, and the phrase without wavering, describe a state of unmovable nature, a state of spiritual stability, if you will. And I want you to take a book in front of you real quick. doesn't matter which one. Just grab a songbook or a Bible. And I want you to take that by the side, and I want you to squeeze that book as hard as you can. And I want you to keep squeezing and squeezing until it makes your knuckles white. And you can see on your hands, your knuckles will start turning white. And you can stop squeezing now. What's happening here is you are struggling so much to grip that book that you're consuming all the blood and all the oxygen supply that you have and sending them into your hand muscles so that your knuckles are turning white. You see in older Greek literature, that Greek phrase that is sometimes translated as hold fast or without wavering is in a synonymous relationship with the idea that loosely translates to white knuckles. Now, I want you to consider a question about your own faith this morning. What would it take to break your grip? Now, I know that was all metaphorical, but when it comes to your faith, what would it take to break your grip? The loss of a career, would that break your grip? Loss of a loved one, would that pry a finger off that book? Unexpected diagnosis, that knife cuts a little deeper. Would that break your faith down? What will it take to break your grip? When it comes to spiritual maturity, the Hebrew writer is urging them to press on to spiritual maturity because the worst is yet to come. The Roman Empire would impale people, cover them in oil, and use them as lanterns outside their gates. They would have Christian parents hold their children as they stone both of them. They would crucify Christians upside down to mock Jesus, throw them in a coliseum and set lions on them for sport. The worst was yet to come for the Hebrew Christians. These early Christians often had to meet in underground areas, in people's homes, sometimes in catacombs in order to be able to worship. And there's a story from secular history regarding a man named Tarsisius. And all of the Christians were gathered for Sunday morning worship in secret. But some of their fellow brothers and sisters have been thrown into a prison. And so the leaders of this group, the elders, decide that they needed to get communion to those prisoners. And it was decided that it was too much of a risk to send some of those leaders to go take communion to the prison 
So a man named Tarsisius volunteers. And as Tarsisius is heading to the prison, concealing the bread and the wine, he's stopped by Roman patrols. And they identify that Tarsisius is a Christian, carrying what the text claims to be Christian secrets. And so they beat him, bash his head in, and they throw him on the ground. The patrol moves on, and it's recorded that one of the guards was a Christian that actually worshipped in secret with Tarsisius. And he comes to his aid and realizes it's too late. But before he dies, Tarsisius hands that soldier the communion and tells him to carry it to the prison. And it's recorded that his last words are, I am dying, but I have kept my God safe from them. Tarsisius lived from 263 AD to 275. He was 12 years old. Brother, and what will it take to break your grip? We have stories like this repeated over and over and over again, and I encourage you to read those. I encourage you to draw inspiration from them, but I also encourage you to reflect on your own faith. Brethren, there were 12-year-olds dying to get communion to fellow Christians on a Sunday morning, and today is full of Christians who claim to be mature, who claim to be devout servants of God, who will miss worship service because we're tired, who will deny worshiping God because the cowboys are playing, who claims spiritual maturity doesn't matter because God's going to save me anyway. That isn't how it's portrayed in the Bible. That isn't how the writers portray it. That isn't what the first century church did, and it certainly isn't what God wants. God urges us to hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering. Paul, when concluding his second letter to Timothy, says this after everything he endured. He says, For I am now ready to be offered... And the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but to, unto all them also that love his appearing. At the end of our days, I hope we too can take a look at our lives, take a survey of everything we went through, the good, the bad, and everything in the middle, and I pray we can see a life of growth. I pray we can see a life of progress moving towards God, growing closer to Him. And I pray, just like Paul, that we can look at our life and say, I have fought the good fight and I have kept the faith. Let us hold fast. Press on to maturity. And just a side note before we move on, we also need to understand, like the story, he's 12 years old, that spiritual maturity and age, total time we've been a Christian, are not always positively correlated. Just because I've been a Christian 60 years doesn't mean I'm spiritually mature. And just because someone may have only been a Christian a few months doesn't mean they're not at a higher level of maturity. After telling us to hold fast, the Hebrew writer comes to his final divine imperative and our horizontal line on that chart from earlier. He says, let us consider one another to provoke unto love and good works. The ESV says, let us consider how to stir one another up. That's where the title came from. And it's not exactly what it sounds like it's saying, so stick with me here. The writer says, let us consider. When you look at the word consider, consider is something that we know. I'm considering buying a new car. I'm considering going to the game. But when you pull the Greek syntax into the sentence, it doesn't really make sense. In fact, the only other time the word consider is used in the same format, the same clause, is in the third chapter of Hebrews. 
It says, Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus. The Greek language for that word consider is brought over, and it's not really translatable. It's more of an imitate, study, focus upon. It's deeper than just think about. And obviously that verb, consider in the Greek, the direct object from Hebrews chapter 3 is what? It's Jesus. So study, imitate, focus on Jesus. Now bring that back to Hebrews chapter 10. This is where it kind of gets difficult to understand. Consider the same verb, the same clause, but now the direct object is one another. One another is the direct object. You see, this is kind of difficult to understand. In fact, accurate Greek would read, consider one another provoking love, good works. That's what it would translate over with. It's kind of hard to understand. So we have to instead consider what the KJV says. Let us consider one another to provoke unto love and good works. And so oftentimes we read this passage and say, well, I'm a Christian, so I should be doing love and good works. Great. I go to the work days. I help people move. I take out the trash. I can check that one off the list, and I can move on. Well, remember what Hebrews 6 said. Therefore, leaving the doctrines of Christ, let us go on to perfection. You see, love and good works is what Jesus taught. And I want you to know the implication of this verse absolutely means, as Christians, we should be doing love and good works just as Jesus taught. But what the writer is actually saying is let us study, let us focus on one another so we can contemplate ways to stimulate or stir up those same people to do the same. You see, that's a bit different meaning than we often take. An elementary doctrine is that we should do love and good works, but to press on to spiritual maturity, I should be considering how to push others to do love and do good works. Now, I want to tell you this passage is not an excuse to not do love and good works. That's not saying, well, hold on, I'm a mature Christian, let me go find somebody who just came out of the water and have them do this job. That's not it either. But a spiritually mature Christian considers how we can get others involved, how we can stimulate one another to grow closer in love, how we can teach other Christians to love, and how to bear one another's burdens. The writer then goes on to give us the negative. He tells us in verse 25, not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is. Here's the truth. It's impossible for me to fulfill my duty as a Christian to stir one another up if I'm not here. And I think Landon said it well when he covered this chapter on a Wednesday night. He said that often we pull this verse out of context and beat people over the head with it, but we do need to keep it in mind. I can't stir up if I'm not here. After the negative, he then gives us the positive, but exhorting one another, exhorting one another. And all this means is bringing one another encouragement. You want to know how to stir someone to love? Encourage them to do just that. You want to know how to stir someone to good works? Encourage them to do just that. We don't need to be discouraging people. Too many Christians are negative. Too many Christians are critical. God's going to need a suggestion box in heaven one of these days. But sometimes it's hard to know exactly how to do this. Stirring up one another. So I want to leave you with three points we can focus on when it comes to spiritual maturity and stirring one another up. Number one, we need to be specific. Be specific. Sometimes it's, it's great to just give a catch-all statement to a brother or sister in Christ and just say, hey, Jeff, I want to encourage you to love. I want to encourage you to do, a, do good works. You're doing a good job. All great, right? 
But to encourage a little deeper, to stir someone up, maybe we need to be a little more specific. Hey, Jeff, I saw how early you woke up the other morning to help that person move. I know that must have taken some planning. I know you had to sacrifice your time. You probably had to sacrifice some money, and I want to thank you for your labor in the kingdom of God. Be specific. Jesus, time and time again, encourages us to be of good cheer and encourages us to love, and he spends most of his ministry teaching in parables on how to do that. Specificity goes a long way in stirring one another up and encouraging one another. The second thing we need to do is we need to be intentional. This is where we need to plan ahead. Remember that verse, it said that we first need to consider one another. We need to study one another. So what we mean by intentionality is simply we need to plan ahead. We need to have opportunities to get people involved. We need to think about the way we're going to talk to one another. We need to be intentional in our actions, in our words, and in the way in which we encourage. During the reign of Saul, Saul learns that David, that little shepherd boy with a sling who killed Goliath, is going to become king. And so Saul decides he's just going to kill him. And so David spends what scholars have calculated about eight years on the run from Saul. And during this time, the son of Saul, a man named Jonathan, was close friends with David. In fact, 1 Samuel 23 and 15 says, And David saw that Saul was come out to seek his life, and David was in the wilderness of Ziph in a wood. And Jonathan, Saul's son, arose and went to David into the wood and strengthened his hand in God. Notice, brethren, that Jonathan had a plan. Jonathan was intentional. He knew David needed words of encouragement. He knew that David needed to be provoked to carry on. So he seeks him out, he finds him, and he strengthens his hand in the Lord. What a blessing it is to be in the kingdom of God, to have brothers and sisters to do that for us. Are you being intentional? And the final thing we need to be is we need to be selfless. Romans 12 and 10 says, Be kindly affection one to another, with brotherly love and honor preferring one another. Paul teaches the Christians at Rome to love one another, to prefer one another. Like we talked about earlier, despite what society may try and teach you, it's not about you. It's not about our glory. It's not about our fame. It's not about our reputation. It's about God's. And it's about serving one another. Now this is the difficult part. We have to be doing all the right things for all the right reasons with a true heart. And selflessness with a focus on your brother or sister is how we can stir one another up. First Samuel 18 and 1 says, And it came to pass, when he had made an end of speaking unto Saul, that the soul of Jonathan was knit with the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Brethren, the reason Jonathan could be intentional, the reason he could encourage David and focus on him was because he loved him as if it were his own soul. Sounds pretty similar to what Paul said in Romans. Be kindly affectionate one to another in brotherly love, preferring one another. We have to be selfless. Put them first, put your brothers and sisters first, and we can stir one another up into love and good works and press on to spiritual maturity. Seek those opportunities out. Lift each other up. I want to leave you with a quote from C.S. Lewis this morning. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, says, Christ says, give me all. I don't want so much of your time and so much of your money and so much of your work. I want you. I have not come to torment your natural self, but to kill it. No half measures are any good. 
hand over the whole natural self, all the desires which you think innocent, as well as the ones you think wicked, the whole outfit. I will give you a new self instead. In fact, I will give you myself. My own shall become yours. Brethren, to become more spiritually mature, we've got to be willing to give it all. We can't be half in and half out and expect to grow as a Christian. We can't expect 100% progress with 10% of the work. We need to hand over our natural self and press on to spiritual maturity. Let us draw near, let us hold fast, let us stir up. The question for you this morning is where are you at spiritually? And where are you headed? Are you doing the things that we need to do to grow closer to God? Or are we drifting away? We all need a little encouragement. We all need to be stirred up to love and good works. And one of the ways we can do that is by praying for you. We can pray for your strength. We can pray for your courage to fight the battles of this life. And we can pray that you draw closer to God. But maybe this morning you aren't a Christian. I want you to know this morning that introduction, having therefore boldness to enter into the holiest, is written to those who are covered in the blood of Jesus. The writer tells Christians to have boldness when approaching God. But if you haven't been forgiven, if your sins haven't been washed away, you can't have that boldness. In fact, what you should have is fear. But it does not have to be that way. In fact, you can change that this morning. Jesus has torn the veil. He has conquered death. He's broken every chain so that we don't have to live in sin, but we can be reborn and live for Christ and have a mansion prepared for us one day. Will you do that this morning as we stand and as we sing?